Welcome to the sermon podcast of First Alliance Church in Lexington, Kentucky. The sermon you're about to hear, Make My Life a Prayer to You, was preached by Tommy Green, who runs the prayer room at the Lexington Leadership Foundation on 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It was recorded on January 15, 2023, and is part of our series, 40 Days of Prayer. Prayer room's been open eight years this month. I, uh, when we started, I sat around and tried to think of a cool name for the ministry, and I couldn't think of anything, so I thought, well, we'll just call it what it is. It's the prayer room. And uh, we've got corporate and individual prayer seven days a week. We have 20 hours of live worship weekly at this point, which is really an amazing thing. It's folks from a lot of different congregations who have assembled together in worship teams and have regular sets uh, throughout the week. And then, you know, again, a lot of different kinds of corporate prayer gatherings uh, with different focal points. And uh, we'd love for you to visit. I'm there Monday through Friday. It's my, it's my main post. Um, and if you Google the prayer room, you'll find us in the schedules online. And we'd love for you to be there. I chose for a theme today uh, the title of an old Keith Green song. Well, it's, it's old depending on how old you are. Um, about 1980, and his wife Melody wrote it, make my life a prayer to you. And it's really about uh, partnering with the Holy Spirit to invite him in and allow him to cultivate within us a deep, instinctual, somebody's got it on their phone right now, I just heard it. That's really good, I like that. I feel the Holy Spirit already. Allowing him to cultivate within us a very deep and instinctual devotion to him, which is his specialty. That's that's his ministry, to honor Jesus and to honor the life of Jesus in us and to empower us, as he has so marvelously done, into this union and communion with him that we now enjoy and really learning under his influence to live a lifestyle of encountering him, of experiencing him, of enjoying him. That's really what worship is, isn't it? We're built for worship, and worship is the expression of our enjoyment of him. It takes on many forms. It takes on the form of music, but it's our life. And that's what this, this theme, how it really resonates for me, is thinking through how adept in how ingenious he is to awaken his own heart in us. I found this quote. It was just last night, so it didn't make it into my slides. This is from a seventh century bishop who I'd never heard of named Isaac the Syrian. I heard at First Alliance, if you quote Isaac the Syrian, that someone will buy you lunch after the service. So... I don't see no hands up out there yet. All right. Isaac the Syrian. When the Holy Spirit has come to reside in someone, that person cannot stop praying. For the Spirit prays without ceasing in him or her. No matter if he is asleep or awake, prayer is going on in his heart all the time. He may be eating or drinking, he may be resting or working. The incense of prayer will ascend spontaneously from his heart. 
The slightest stirring of his heart is like a voice which sings in silence and in secret to the invisible God. So beautiful, isn't it? So it's sort of this notion or really this spiritual reality of, of residing prayer. That really he's the one who's informing the prayer. And I think our conception oftentimes of our prayer lives is that we should hunker down and sort of white knuckle it and make it happen because we are Christians after all. And it's the Christian thing to do. And there certainly are times of hunkering down, aren't there? There's all manner of prayer. The Holy Spirit encourages us through Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter six, when he says, pray always at all times with all manner of prayer. There's a lot of ways to experience him, to encounter him, to enjoy him. But the, the, the way that I want to focus on today is really, I would sort of categorize it as beholding prayer. Just like the scripture that we read through, through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, that as we behold him, we're transfigured to become like him. And as we behold him, we begin to, to reflect him, don't we? Because that which you are most conscious of is naturally that which you release in the world around you. And if we can give the Holy Spirit opportunity to, again, cultivate within us a deeper and a more expansive consciousness of him, of his activity, of his operation, then what happens as a byproduct is that we begin to represent him in the world around us. And that prayer becomes so natural and so normal because our hearts are inclined so marvelously in his direction to begin with. It is as though, it's not even as though, it is that he has tilted the ground of our hearts in his direction. He is our strongest instinct. We are very good at answering the cry of a lot of lesser loves, though, aren't we? Even the most beautiful of lesser loves. But truly, the deepest and the strongest instinct, inclination of our hearts is for him, for his glory. So I thought of some guys, and they were natural to come by, sort of in the pantheon of folks who walk deeply and intimately with the Lord. You know, it was natural and normal for me to think of Abraham and this life that he lived of uh, interacting with the God of the whole universe. And of course, you know the narrative the Lord appears to him in chapter 12 of Genesis and says, hey, I want you to leave your country. Go to a land that I'm going to show you because in and through your descendant, through your seed, capital S seed, Christ, I'll bless all the families of the earth. So Abraham gets out and the writer of Hebrews later on in his account says, Abraham goes not knowing where, but neither did he trouble his mind about where he was going. He just went because the Lord told him. And then the Lord encountered him again one chapter later, Genesis 13. He said, I'm going to, he reaffirmed the promise. I'm going to make your descendants as numberless as the dust of the earth. Genesis 15 is about halfway through his faith journey. As you'll recall from the time that the Lord originally appears to him and begins to interact with him in this friendship 
So Abraham's known as a friend of God. It's about a 25-year faith journey from the time that the Lord initially appeared in his life until the fulfillment of the promise, the birth of Isaac. And I don't want to accuse Abraham of wavering because the scripture testifies otherwise. The Holy Spirit testifies through scripture otherwise. It says that he considered not his own body, now dead, being about 100 years old. Neither yet did he consider the deadness of Sarah's womb. But he grew strong in faith and he was empowered by faith as he gave glory to God, fully persuaded that what he promised, he was able also to perform. Fully persuaded that what he promised, he was able also to perform. But he appears to have had a wandering mind at times also. And again, I'm not accusing him of wavering, but I think I am saying it appears that he was wondering. Because here in Genesis 15, he interacts with the Lord again. And he says, you know, Lord, you made this promise to me, but I don't have a son. All I have is this Eleazar of Damascus, my chief steward. And when I pass, everything that I have is going to pass on to him. Where's this son that you promised? Where's the promise that you promised? I felt like that. I'm sure you felt like that. What happens, though, when we give the Holy Spirit opportunity is that he grounds us in the goodness of God, no matter what we see out here, irregardless of circumstances. But my point is, here's Abraham again, and he's got this running conversation going on with the Lord. You promised it hadn't happened. What's up with that? God said, come here, let me show you something. And so he takes him outside of his tent out into the starlight and he lifts his gaze. He said, you see those stars up there? If you can count those stars, that's how numberless your descendants will be also. I tell you what, the Lord wants to take us outside of our tent. He wants to take us outside of our present level of understanding and experience. He wants to take us outside of what we already have a category for. And he wants to be working out here where there's infinite capacity. If we just give him a chance to lift our gaze also and behold the limitlessness of the possibilities of life in him and through him. But it doesn't happen because we work up the spiritual energy to make it happen. It happens because we give him opportunity to enkindle within us a longing for him. He wants to take us outside of the parameters and the confines of what we know and understand. And he wants to expand and heighten again our awareness of him, our consciousness of his activity and his operation. You can understand your tent. You can understand your world. I've lived in the same house now for 14 years. And I got it figured out. Listen, I, I'm not trying to be silly, but I have to wake up about four in the morning to go to the bathroom every morning. That's a real thing in case people didn't realize that. My wife sleeps like a rock. She never wakes up. But just to be sure I don't turn the lights on because I don't need to turn the lights on. 
I take three paces in this direction. I feel right here. There's the door frame. I feel the other door frame. I walk a few more paces. I turn left. I make it all the way to the bathroom. And again, I'm not trying to be silly, but I can bend down and lift up the toilet seat with my eyes closed. I got it figured out. I'm a pretty good husband, too. I put that thing back down when I'm done. <laughs> I understand my tent. I can do it with my eyes closed. I don't want to say I don't need him, but I don't ask him. I just get up and go. He wants to do some stuff that I don't have a framework for in my life and in our midst. And the only way that I get drawn into him to such an extent that I begin to experience what he's dreaming of is beholding him. Moses, obviously. Holy Spirit testified concerning Moses. Chapter 33 of Exodus said there's been no one who's arisen who's known the Lord face to face. Another translation says mouth to mouth. That Moses and the God of the universe were breathing the same air. It speaks to proximity. It speaks to intimacy and relationship. You don't just breathe the same air with anyone, do you? You know, my wife, I was telling the first service, She's got these three little laugh lines now that appear just on one eye. They're the cutest thing. Nobody else in the world knows about them. She doesn't even know about them unless I tell her because she doesn't laugh at herself in the mirror. I said, honey, you got these three little lines right there now. They're the cutest thing. Nobody else knows that because she and I are that close. And that's how Moses' relationship was with the Lord. There was a lady named Margaret Thurkelson, who uh, mentored me in prayer. Margaret passed five or six years ago. Margaret led a Tuesday evening prayer gathering, intercessory prayer gathering in this city for 37 years. Every Tuesday. Did not miss unless Tuesday was Christmas or New Year's. She led a contemplative prayer gathering for 18 years, two Thursdays a month. And Margaret would get me by the collar sometimes And get a hold of me and pull me in. She was a tall lady. She's six feet tall. And she'd pull me in and we'd be face to face. I mean, we'd be, I could smell her makeup. That's close. I should say I could smell her rouge. They call it rouge in those days. That's that's the old-fashioned word for blush, I believe. She'd draw me so close, we'd be eyeball to eyeball. She'd say, Tommy, you lay hold. You get a hold of the horns of the altar and you don't let go. Other times she'd get a hold of me and say, you wait. You wait on the, you wait on the Lord. Learn to attend unto him. Learn to minister unto him. Learn to sit before him in silence. And let him inform your prayer before you vocalize anything. Boy, we'd be breathing the same air. That's how Moses' relationship, but even better, was with the Lord. And so he gets in this running conversation with the Lord in the 33rd chapter of Exodus while he's been with him, enjoying this time of very intense union and communion. And he says, Lord, you know what? I'm not going anywhere without you. 
And you know what else? I'm not taking these other guys and ladies and kids anywhere without you. We can't go anywhere without you. How could we? Paraphrasing, obviously. And the Lord says, paraphrasing, okay, what do you want? And the the chief cry, the deepest longing of Moses' heart comes to the forefront in that moment. What, what What do you want? I'll tell you what you're framed for, what you're built for, how the Lord constituted you, and how we've been recreated in Christ Jesus. You're built for the glory of God. You're built to be receptacles of the Most High God, to be receivers of him personally and him passionately. And that was Moses' cry. That was his instinct. He said, show me your glory. Before he said that, he said, I pray that you would show me your glory. Another translation says, I beg you to show me your glory. What he was saying is convey unto me your glory. Not just may I experience, but may I be a partaker and a recipient of. I beseech you, show me your glory. So the Lord says, okay, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of this rock. Glory to God. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of this rock. I'm going to cause all my goodness to pass before you. The Lord's glory is his goodness, and his goodness is his glory. I'm going to cause all my goodness to pass before you, and I'm going to proclaim my name, the Lord, as I pass before you. And that's what he did. And the whole earth shook. Moses encountered the glory of God to such an extent that when he came down the mountain, Nobody else could even stand to look upon him because of the radiance of God's glory that was reflected from his life. And I do pray, I appreciate your introduction. I'm not any spiritual superstar. I'm not any superman in prayer. But I do pray and I do sit before him. And that's my cry too. And that's your cry also, that we would partake. So nobody else could even look on him. He had to veil his face because of the glory of God. And you would think that when the Israelites, you know, encountered the Lord like that, that it would, uh, it would provide some kind of firmness for them that they would stand upon. But they were irresolute a lot, weren't they? And sometimes we're irresolute a lot also. And so as soon as he comes down the mountain, he, has, he breaks the two stone tablets that God's own finger engraved. They've gone through this golden calf episode where they've begun to worship an idol. Moses grinds it into dust, makes them drink it, and still they stray. So much so that the Lord sends fiery serpents into their midst. I can't explain it. It doesn't make sense to me, but I know that God's good. And Moses cries out in prayer to the Lord. He said, what are we going to do? The Lord said, okay, you fashion a bronze serpent. You put him on a pole and you lift him up. And everyone who looks upon him will be healed. That word looks in the Hebrew means not a casual glance. It means a steady, absorbing, fixed gaze. I tell you what, when we have a steady, absorbing, fixed gaze, that is the settled stance of our hearts upon the Lord, 
what happens is that we experience the wholeness, the healing, the deliverance, the freedom, the salvation that he has marvelously worked in us and continues to work through us. A steady, absorbing, fixed gaze. Jesus quoted Moses later on in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, right before the beautiful verse 16. He said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So must he be lifted up on the cross, but lifted up in our lives. And see, I think in our humanity, we have this tendency to try to to muscle our spiritual life and sometimes to force fit and manufacture and want to produce. And it's very earnest. The motivation is good and the motivation is of God. But sometimes, again, we misdirect and we think, oh, gosh, what are the 10 things I need to do to be an adequate husband? What are the seven keys to financial freedom I need to incorporate into my life? What are the 15 things I need to be doing to be acceptable to him so that he receives me and welcomes me? And Jesus is saying, hey, why don't you lift up a steady, fixed, absorbing gaze upon me? Why don't you quit trying to figure out the 47 things that are wrong with you and look into what's right with me? Because when you do that, that gives me an opportunity to reconfigure the landscape of your heart life that needs to be reconfigured. That's the kind of freedom. Wherever the, wherever the spirit is Lord, there is freedom. That's the scripture that we read. Before Jesus was lifted up on the cross, before he was arrested and tortured and murdered, He prayed, didn't he, in John 17? And this is what he said. I'm not asking on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word. All of those who believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us so that the world may know and believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I also have given them so that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and you love them just as you love me. I mean, that last line. Wow, really? The whole... The whole prayer, and those are just a couple verses, but the whole prayer is so beautiful. The last line, that you are the objects of his intense and wonderful affection to such an extent that the love that he, that he is and the love that he's lavished upon his only begotten, he has for you and has lavished upon you and is lavishing upon you. The same quality of love and the same quantity of love. Glory to God. I bet you never thought of yourself as the identical twin of Jesus, did you? You probably thought about the 47 things that are wrong with you. If you're anything like me, it may be that our fathers think, there's my beloved son. There's my beloved daughter in whom is all my delight, period. 
Boy, I got to go back to that, I guess. I'm, I got six and a half minutes left. Man, I'm doing better than the second service. All right. Before he prayed this prayer in Matthew 17, he took Peter and James and John up to that high mountain to be alone, didn't he? And as he prayed, he was transfigured. And those brothers saw him the way he really is. And the word of God says there that his face shone with the radiance of the sun and his clothes were like lightning. He's a normal man who happens to be the son of God, but he's a normal person. And as he prayed, then Moses and Elijah appeared with him. I can't go into all that right now, but it's so beautiful. They spoke with him about his exodus from life. Moses in the exodus of the Israelites, and they spoke with Jesus about his exodus from life that he should accomplish at Jerusalem so that the rest of us could enter the promised land of his heart. Glory to God. And Peter, who was quick to pipe up, as you know, said, wow, this is a beautiful thing for us to be here. Let's make three houses, one for you, one for these guys, and one for us. Let's just stay here. But then the father interjected, didn't he? The voice of God from heaven said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Be listening to him. This is my beloved in whom is all my delight. That phrase means in whom all of my delight is stored up. The Lord's storing up his delight in you. And our heart in response is like David's, the one that he engendered in David. One thing have I desired, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, to have this running conversation with him, like Abraham, the friend of God, like Moses, the friend of God, like Jesus, the son of God. This is my beloved. The beloved of the Lord. Your only real job is to be loved. I'm trying to come up with some good one-liners. I don't know if that was any good or not. Was it any good? I'll say it again to somebody. You're the beloved of the Lord. Your real job is to be loved. Let life flow out of that. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks about him in John 16. Before that, he said, you know what? I got to go away. If I don't go away, the comforter, the helper, the strengthener, the intercessor himself, the one who's praying himself, always according to the will of our father, the helper, the advocate, the one who stands by you. Holy Spirit, who is God, who, you know, who's with you will be in you. And so Jesus in John 16 talks about the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. There's so much honor among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that they share. Good night. That gives me chills. I mean, here's the Father saying, this is my beloved Son. You hear him. You be listening to him. And here's Jesus saying, I don't do anything except I saw him do it first. And here's the Holy Spirit saying, my whole mission is to honor and glorify and magnify the name of Jesus. We get drawn into this honor, this place of participation with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the form of this residing prayer or beholding prayer 
We're cultivating a life of, of seeing him. I can't talk about all the ways you see him, but I've talked about Idaho, where Paul lived. I've talked about Montana with Heather, where she lived. Oh, you see him everywhere. You see him in his word. You see him in relationship. You see him in the stillness of your heart. You see him in the beauty of creation. That's what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. He will honor and glorify me because he will take of, it's the Amplified Translation, receive, draw upon what is mine and will reveal, declare, disclose, and transmit it to you. This is what the Holy Spirit's going to do. He's going to take everything that's mine. He's going to convey it to you. Think about that. I should have probably just said nothing else today. That's good enough. So that sort of begs the question, okay, what, if he's going to take everything that's yours, Jesus, and convey it to us, what's yours? Well, he answers it in the next verse. Everything that the Father has is mine. That is what I meant when I said that he, the Holy Spirit, will take the things that are mine and will reveal, declare, disclose, and transmit them to you. It's not a it. It's not really a what. It's a life. It's a person. He's conveying the person of Jesus who enjoys vital union and communion with our Father to each one of us. And that is a current reality that is right now online in each one of our hearts and our circumstantial lives right now. And so Jesus speaks to us. Boy, I'm doing good. I got a minute left, Paul. Man, I'm doing good. In that great context of fruit bearing, one chapter prior, John 15. In verse 7, King James Version is very simple. If you abide in me and my words remain in you, ask what you will, it'll be done for you. That's interesting, isn't it? Ask what you will. I want to know what's in your heart. I know already, but I want to know. I want you to know. Because I trust you to ask in a manner that's consistent with my nature and my character indwelling you. I know you're not going to go out and ask for a I don't know. The only thing I can think of is a red Ferrari. I don't know why. It just came to my mind. I know you're going to ask in a way that's in keeping with our life together. A little more expansive version. This is the Kenneth Wiest expanded Greek translation. I'm not a scholar, but I like this. If you maintain a living communion with me, excuse me, if you maintain a living communion with me and my words are at home in you, I command you to ask. Apparently, it's in the imperative, the sentence structure. It's not just ask if you want to. I'm telling you, ask at once something for yourself, whatever your heart desires, and it will become yours. It's in the context of fruit bearing. He knows that when you ask from this place of enjoying him, that he's going to be pleased to respond in the affirmative. And that the cry of your heart as it comes to the forefront is going to take shape in this plane of life. It's going to transfigure the world around you because he's transfigured your heart life already. Jesus, there really is not much more to say. You are are beautiful. Uh, That song says you're beautiful beyond description. That is sure true. And I thank you for these moments that we've been able to pause and look to you. And I pray that you would, Lord, uh, acquaint 
each one of us better with your facial expression. That we would see the laugh lines on your face. That we would see the smile that creases your face. That's how you moved Aaron, the brother of Moses, to pray, isn't it, Lord? The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you. The Lord lift up the light of his approving smile. Father, may we be seeing your approving smile in the person of Jesus. May we know you deeply. May we know you intimately. Thank you for the way that you stir our hearts. God, I remember how you moved the psalmist to pray in Psalm 34 when he talked about the Israelites. He said, they looked to you and they were filled and flooded with you. We look to you, Lord, and we thank you for the filling and the flooding continually of your life. Thank you so much, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Here at First Alliance Church, our mission is to passionately pursue God, extend life-changing hope, and disciple people to be spirit-empowered followers of Jesus. To learn more about our church or to hear other sermons like this one, visit us at facelex.com.